Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Solitary confinement, locked away by yourself with no human contact, is the topic of this edition of our program. An estimated 100,000 people are currently held in solitary confinement in the United States. The conditions in which they live are abysmal. There is little or no human contact. Often, these inmates are kept in dark, cold, wet cells, eight feet by 10 feet in size. Many suffer from mental illness prior to or as a result of solitary confinement. This results in significant long-term damage to these individuals and our society as a whole. Dr. Terry Allen Coopers, a forensic psychiatrist, is the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. In this first of a two-part series on solitary confinement, Coopers shares interviews with prisoners who have been raped, subdued with immobilizing gas, beaten by prison guards, and whose mental and physical health has been ignored. He has found that people of color are much more likely to be held in solitary confinement than are white people. Coopers argues that solitary confinement is tantamount to torture and, per se, violates the constitutional prohibition of cruel or unusual punishment. When Dr. Terry Coopers and I visited by phone from his home in Oakland, California, on February 11, 2018, we began this first of two conversations when I asked him to define forensic psychiatry and the background of solitary confinement. Basically, psychiatry is a specialty of medicine. I do a general practice of psychiatry, and that's just run-of-the-mill, very wide variety of patients in various situations. And then I do forensic psychiatry, which is defined as the interface of psychiatry and the law. Generally, forensic psychiatrists do things like uh, evaluating for incompetence to stand trial or not guilty by reason of insanity. My particular specialty has become correctional facilities, either the conditions in the correctional facilities, which are not optimal and cause psychiatric damage, or the quality of mental health in correctional facilities, because it's turned out through history a growing population of prisoners suffer from serious mental illness. And third, I testify about sexual abuse in correctional facilities. And by correctional facilities, I mean jails and prisons. Terry, let's discuss solitary confinement and the place where prisoners are housed in what is called the Special Housing Unit uh, with the acronym of a SHU. Yes. The SHU comes from California, and Security Housing Unit is the name for entire cell blocks or sometimes entire prisons that are dedicated to solitary confinement. That means in every cell there is one prisoner who is locked in that cell 22, 23, or even 24 hours per day, eats their meals in the cell, 
often there's no window in the cell. The doors are made of steel and open and closed by remote control. The prisoner is not really able to see out of the cell, can't see the can't see nature, can't see the sky, can't see the landscape, and spends all of their time in that cell with relatively little to do. In some states, they're allowed to have television or radio, in some states not. And basically, they are just idle and isolated all of the time. Why are prisoners put into the shoe? Well, that's a good question. In the beginning, and I'm talking back at the time of the Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin uh, designed a solitary confinement unit at the Wal- at Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia. The idea was that someone who broke the law should be left alone to think about or become penitent, and that's the origin of the word penitentiary, to think about how their life had gone awry and to straighten it out. Very soon after that was invented in the Walnut Street Jail, the jail became massively overcrowded because they were arresting more people, and it became a warehouse where instead of one person in the cell with maybe the warden visiting every day to ask how it's going with their thinking about their crime, now there became two or three or four people in that same cell. No one visited them. They just basically were warehoused in a cell, and their mental health deteriorated. We've had solitary confinement ever since for various reasons. Usually the reason is that the people who run the jails and prisons feel that they can't control the, the, the facility. There's too much violence. There's too much misbehavior. So they have to take a group of prisoners who they identify as the worst of the worst, in other words, the troublemakers, and put them in a cell by themselves. How was that identification of the worst of the worst manifested? Well, first of all, let me say that it's it's just a false characterization. It isn't the worst of the worst. Um, But in different states, there are different reasons that people are put in solitary confinement. In some states, it's punishment for specific rule violations or violence or an escape risk. In some states, like in California, until a recent lawsuit was settled, it was for gang affiliation. And in California, where the SHU acronym originated, if you were identified as related to a gang, a prison gang, you would be put in SHU or solitary confinement for the rest of your term, which might be the rest of your life. Um, In other states, there are administrative reasons to put people in the SHU. For instance, uh, gay prisoners, transgender prisoners, prisoners who are vulnerable. What every standard that we have requires is that for protection, people should not be put in isolation. Rather, they should be given a separate place to do their regular activities. Those are in the same cell or separate cells? Most solitary confinement is one prisoner to a cell. In some states, and for some relatively small proportion of the prisoners, there are two prisoners in a solitary cell. If there's anything worse than solitary confinement, it's having two people in a solitary confinement cell. That's where a lot of tempers flare, and there's violence, and there are murders of one cellmate by another. But for the most part, it's one prisoner to a prison cell. In your work in forensic psychiatry, what is the consequence uh, to a person 
who has been put in the shoe for a duration of their time in prison? Well, I have done a lot of research, as has many others, and we're quite concerned about it. The across-the-board result is very severe emotional damage, psychiatric damage. In prisoners who are relatively stable, that is, at the time they are placed in isolation, we don't know of any emotional problems they're having. They develop a series of very worrisome symptoms, including very high anxiety, which may take the form of panic attacks, disordered thinking. They become confused. They have frightening thoughts. Often they become paranoid. Uh, They do compulsive acts like cleaning their cell over and over or pacing constantly. So they they pace for many miles in a day within their 6 by 8 or 8 by 10 foot cell. Um, There's despair. People say that they they don't think they'll ever get out of their uh, solitary cell. And there's anger. There's mounting anger and... um, The prisoners usually can't explain why they're so angry. They have a certain amount of anger about being placed in isolation, but they tell me that their anger just keeps on growing and it doesn't seem rational. And they're very frightened that their anger will get out of control, they'll get in further trouble, and then they'll have a longer time in solitary. Now, all of that is in the relatively stable prisoner. You mention people who are assigned to solitary confinement. Why would somebody be assigned? Again, that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In a lot of states, there are certain offenses, rule violations, that will be punished with six months or a year in solitary confinement. For instance, fighting. So prisoners who get into a fight have to go to solitary for six months or a year. Now, the truth about it is that the person might have no culpability for the fight. In prison, if you're challenged to fight and you don't fight, you will be victimized. You'll potentially become someone's sexual prey from then on. So there's no real choice in the matter. And if challenged to fight, you have to fight. But both people who are involved in a fight then get thrown into solitary confinement for whatever the period of punishment As I said, in other places, it's gang affiliation, and often it's just that the officers are mad at somebody or they don't know what to do with someone, and they put them in solitary. Our guest is Dr. Terry Coopers, a forensic psychiatrist based in Oakland, California. He is the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So when they're in solitary confinement, there's uh, what you've described in your book, a downward spiral where people who are assigned or forced into solitary confinement get worse and worse in, in their mental health or something that creates a mental health condition for them. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, I call it the culture of punishment. In the In a normal prison where there's a general population and there's a bunch of prisoners and they're in the day room, they're in their cells, they're on the yard, and there's a bunch of officers who are supervising them, there are various kinds of interactions between officers and prisoners. They they might make small talk. The prisoners might befriend a particular officer and tell them that one of his children is having trouble and they might talk about it. The officers might encourage them to take a certain uh, training program or class. 
when prisoners are sent to solitary confinement, the only relationship they have with officers is that an officer comes by and passes a food tray through a slot in their door. So the relationship between the officers and the prisoners deteriorates rapidly. Then there's a tendency when one group of people has total control over another and the group that is being controlled has no recourse. And I, I think of this also happens in secret or private places where the public, for instance, doesn't know what's going on. There's a tendency for the keepers to become increasingly sadistic towards the kept. The Stanford mock prison experiment of the other 70, uh, early 70s brought this out. So what happens in solitary confinement is that the relationships between staff and prisoners is reduced to simple have, simply having rules of what the prisoner is supposed to do and what the prisoner is not supposed to do, and having officers who detect violations of the rules and punish the prisoners. And that becomes the entirety of their interaction. That's what deteriorates. It's a vicious cycle or a downward spiral because solitary confinement is the worst punishment that can be um, meted out to someone in prison. But once someone who is having trouble behaving themselves is put in solitary confinement, their unacceptable behaviors will sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time, get worse. And as they get worse, the, the officers then have to punish them because that's the only inter, uh, interaction they have, and they will create worse punishments. So what we have now are things like the cell extraction, where a group of officers invade the cell of a prisoner uh, wearing uh, basically riot gear and gas masks, they first spray the prisoner with pepper spray or worse. Then they crash into a cell and slam him against a wall and put him in shackles. And this horrible scenario happens inside solitary confinement units. The spraying of pepper spray is very commonplace, and often officers will spray the people who they don't like. Racism has a lot to do with this. Almost 50% of the prisoners are African-American, and another 20 or 25% are Latinos. And officers, for the most part, are uh, white. So there's a lot of racial animosity if they white officer is supervising a black prisoner who is in a solitary cell, there's just many, many opportunities for bias and bigotry to take effect, and the entire relationship deteriorates. On average, the more punitive the staff are with the prisoners, the less recourse the prisoners feel they have, so they respond with more and more extreme acts of resistance, which might be uh, swearing at the officer. It might be throwing something at the officer. Sometimes that's body waste. Uh, prisoners also turn this on themselves. They cut themselves. They smear feces. Just some very bizarre things happen because of the severity of the isolation and the punitive nature of the setting. You have an interesting comparison as perhaps your work as a couples therapist when couples engage only in arguments for the purpose of engaging. 
Uh, and you compare that to the way the person in solitary confinement relates to the guards. Can you make that comparison for us? Yes. In couples therapy, we often find that a woman in a heterosexual relationship will seemingly for no reason get very angry at her partner. And the couples therapist will say that what you're doing is upping the ante with anger so that you'll have some emotional connections. And I took that experience we have in couples therapy and psychotherapy in the community and applied it in the solitary setting. And it's obvious when you tour these places that the anger is just robust. The the prisoners are angry. The officers are angry. They, they cuss at each other. All kinds of awful things like the cell extraction I just talked about occur. Um, and I wonder whether what's going on, it's unconscious, prisoners would not say this is what's going on, is that the prisoner is so emotionally upset about this stark isolation and having no one to talk to or relate to, that they make trouble with the officers just to have someone to interact with. What type of person, in your experience, uh, chooses to become a prison guard? That's a very good question, and I've thought a lot about that. I've, I've thought a lot about what leads people to do what seem to me very callous and cruel things to prisoners that they're in charge of. I don't think it started that way. I think people enter the correctional officer force for generally good reasons. They want to do some public service. They want to help someone. Maybe they had a history in their life of some early criminal behavior and drug behavior, and they want to help younger people to avoid that kind of thing. So they become a correction officer. That's on average, I think, the usual situation. However, there are some sadistic people who are bullies and just like to abuse their power and beat people up and, and take out their anger on people. What tends to happen is that the bullies and sadists among the officers come to the fore. For instance, they sign up to work in the solitary confinement unit, and then they start mistreating the prisoners. So they use excessive force, they beat them up, they spray them with pepper spray when it's not really necessary, and it's far beyond, it's, it's not within the policy to do some of the things they do. And then what happens is there's a blue code. The blue code among officers is the unwritten agreement that we will not inform on each other. So the officers who I believe, on average, are motivated to help people are silent when the bullies and the sadists start abusing prisoners. And that's why what we get is a situation where abuse is a dominant way of relating to the prisoners. There's also a similar code among the prisoners uh, to not rat or uh, identify other prisoners, gang members, for example. Yes, that's very true. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's the no snitch rule. There's an unwritten prisoner code. I call it the male code in prison. And that is you have to be tough. You have to posture like a tough guy. You have to keep your cards close to your chest. You shouldn't show any weakness. You shouldn't show any emotions, actually, except anger. And the reason is that if you do, you'll be victimized. Well, the code keeps going on to more intricate uh, rules. And for instance, you should never snitch on another prisoner. If you snitch on a prisoner, a third prisoner might kill you. And the reason is because you violated the code. 
So then let's look at this snitching perspective from a person who is in isolation in in the uh, special housing unit, the SHU, and has information about who gang members are and who are not gang members, yet is suspected to be a gang member. Um, yes, and the way this works, so California is a good illustration, and different states and the federal system are slightly different, but generally this is um, a reflection of what goes on. So basically the state, which knows very well that prisoners can be killed for snitching, that's just known by all parties in prison, um, is forcing prisoners to either spend the rest of their life in solitary or snitch. The prisoners talked about snitch, parole, or die. That's the only way to get out of the shoe in California. Snitch is to debrief and tell the authorities about three, basically, incidents and the parties involved in them, and that would be snitching. Um, Parole means your sentence ends. For instance, you've got a fixed sentence of 10 years, and the 10 years run out. Then they have to let you out of the shoe because you're you're leaving prison or die, which the prisoners all feel that they're going to do, is to die in the solitary cell. So there's this terrible um, elevation of the prison code rule against snitching into a trap for prisoners, which made them in a total untenable situation. Yet in some states, there is no program for a prisoner who is in solitary confinement uh, on how to learn to get along in the outside world, as there is that opportunity for prisoners who are not in solitary confinement. Can you address that? Yes. Well, we, what you're talking about in one form or another is rehabilitation. That is, we have, you know, there are two, almost two and a half million people in jail and prison. That's a significant part of the population. And people tend to go to prison for the first time for very short times, for two or three years. Usually it's a drug-related crime, and usually the person is probably going to outgrow the drug use if left to their own uh, devices. But instead, they're put in prison, which is a very toxic environment, and leads them more and more into a criminal life. Well, if you take those people, most of whom have not finished high school because they were being delinquent and doing drugs as a kid, and and prisoners will tell you, I was a stupid kid and I did some things I shouldn't have done, but they outgrow that. Now they're in prison. If we would give them some training in, for instance, skilled uh, shop work, for instance, metalworking, uh, cabinet making, etc., and if we would give them an education, and that is get them through their high school level and then take college classes, which is done and could be done with all prisoners, uh, then when they get out, and, and also teach them social skills, have them in... in um, supervised uh, group settings where they learn to get along with each other, for instance, with no anger, with no vengeance, that kind of thing, then we would be training them for picking up as productive citizens when they get out of prison and rejoin the community. Instead, if we keep them in an isolation cell for most of their prison tenure, when they leave prison, they're not going to have any of the skills they're going to have developed the habit of not relating to other human beings. 
They're going to not be able to carry on meaningful relationships with others. They're not going to have done any productive activities, sometimes for many years or even decades. And when they get out, they're just going to not be able to function. They're not going to be able to have intimate social relations. They're not going to be able to hold a job, to find a job or hold a job. And you're right. They should have some kind of retraining in the skills of daily living, particularly including love and work. No one should max out of the shoe. Maxing out of the shoe means being released from prison straight out of solitary confinement. Rather, there should be a skill-building period where the person is put through some social groups where they relearn to relate to others in a kind rather than violent way. They should be given some work skills. They should be helped with their substance abuse problems, with their anger management, whatever. And that should occur before they're released from prison. And so nobody should be in shoe, for instance, within a year of their release date. Rather, they should be doing intensive rehabilitation and resocialization training. Well, Dr. Terry Coopers, um, that leads us into the alternative to solitary confinement, which will be the topic of our next visit, the next edition of Radio Curious. But before we close on this portion, what extent of training for prison guards who guard people in solitary confinement do you feel is lacking? Well, training at all levels is lacking. The The prerequisites for being a prison guard uh, often don't even include, in some states, a high school diploma. But uh, in California, where the guards union is very powerful, the uh, California Correctional Police Officers Association, salaries for prison guards are at least double what they are for school teachers. But one doesn't need a degree. In Scandinavia, where the prisons are much more rational than ours, they're much smaller, they're organized around rehabilitation, people relate to each other in a kindly way rather than being brutal to each other, the officers towards the prisoners, there are no guards. There are correctional professionals. A correctional professional has a certain amount. I would say it's they have to have a college degree in some of these Scandinavian countries, and they have to have training both in security, which is the officer part of the job, and in psychology, which allows them to be sensitive towards prisoners with emotional problems, and in education, because probably the biggest deficit in the lives of prisoners is the education system, which they did not uh, traverse successfully. In the United States, instead, we don't do a very good screening about the personality of the officer. So if we've got a sadist who wants to become an officer, though they can brutalize people, we have no way to screen it out. If we have misogynists, I do a certain amount of cases where uh, sexual assault happens in women's prisons. In men's prisons, sexual assault is usually prisoner on prisoner, but in women's prisons, it's custodial misbehavior. The staff take advantage of the prisoners sexually. Well, we should have some kind of screening so that, for instance, individuals who have had problems in the past with domestic violence or bullying weaker people or uh, being misogynistic in any way or being homophobic should not be allowed to be officers. So all of that needs to happen. None of it does happen. 
Dr. Terry Coopers, I thank you very much for being with us on the first of two interviews about solitary confinement in our nation's prisons. It's been a great pleasure. This has been the first of a two-part series on solitary confinement within our nation's prisons. Our guest is Dr. Terry Coopers, a forensic psychiatrist based in Oakland, California, and the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. His recommendation for a book will be shared in our next interview. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.